families. So we're going to have these guests with us for a few Sundays. And then on the last Sunday of this month, we will have a representative from Jefferson County who will be here simply to introduce herself and to answer any questions that uh, some of you may have. You know, I have thought for a long time, Teresa and I have talked about this, that perhaps if uh, more and more of God's people were to think seriously about adoption, um, we could put perhaps at least that department of social services out of business. Wouldn't that be an awesome thing? You know, James 1.27 says that the religion that our Lord God considers pure and faultless is to care for widows and orphans. And so many of these precious children are, are orphans in the sense that they have no permanent family. They have no, as they call them, forever family. So these are here uh, for us to just be looking at over the next few Sundays and, and uh, perhaps... God's Spirit will, will cause you to, to think and to consider. Maybe you're at a place in your life where at least to, uh, to pray and be open to the possibility that God might want to take one of these young lives and plug them into your family. What, what an awesome blessing that could be. Well, in honor of my British friends who are here this morning, the uh, London Telegraph has posted this story recently. And we were just talking about the Church of England the other night together. The Church of England has published some new guidelines urging that worshipers with special needs should be particularly welcomed in church to counter intimidation that they have felt in the past. The church says that 90% of people who come to a church don't return because other worshipers are so unfriendly. The church has identified in this special needs group those who are blind, those who are deaf, short people, <laughs> breastfeeding mothers, bold people, who they say could suffer, and this is a quote, trouble from those overhead radiant heaters that some churches have installed. And last, but certainly not least, those who read tabloid newspapers. <laughs> we're in, Dale, we're in. You know, some of the categories uh, may be a little different than what we would think of, but three cheers for the Church of England, striving to be more sensitive in a climate that is not, striving to be more caring and welcoming in a culture that is not overly sensitive caring to those with special needs. But here's the deal, friends, and you know this is true. It's not just the English culture. It's any culture. It's the human culture. Because in every culture, inside of every person who is a part of that culture, there beats a human heart. And therein lies the problem. As we have said many times, it is always a problem of the heart. The reason that, that the human culture is what it is, the reason that there is so much pain and so much suffering and so much heartache is ultimately as a result of the human heart's rejection of God. 
And where there is a human heart that is not touched and changed by the grace of God, problems of hurt and pain abound. As a matter of fact, there are hearts that have been touched by God's grace and they still can become a source of hurt and pain and nastiness. Just ask my family what my heart can do from time to time. None of yours, of course, but it's, it's just mine. It's just mine. Matthew West sings a song called The Motions, and the course of that song has, I think, become the mantra of my life. He says, I don't want to go through the motions. I don't want to go one more day without your all-consuming passion inside of me. I don't want to spend my whole life asking, what if I had given everything instead of going through the motions? My friends, that's what it is to be a follower of Christ. It is to get every, give everything and, and to not go through the motions any longer. What a great question. What if I had given everything? What would we experience of God and all that God can do in our lives and in the lives of those around us if we would give everything? Not hold back, not go through the motions. There is the human heart condition. It's going through the motions. It is holding back. It is not giving up control. You ever wrestle with that? You feel that? Are you there? That battle in your heart to turn it all over the Lord, let him have his way in your life completely, and yet there is something that holds out for me. Just not quite sure. Teresa and I were talking just a couple of days ago about trust and obedience as followers of Christ. There is nothing that is more fundamental to being a follower of Jesus Christ than trusting in the character of the one who has called us and then obediently following the one who has called us to wherever he calls us to go. And there are blessings and there are experiences I am, I am sure that I have sacrificed in my life because I'm holding out. I'm not giving everything. And I'm guessing that it may be true for some of you as well. That song that we sing from time to time that a lot of us have sung since our Sunday school days, trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. I think I began to understand that just a couple of years ago after singing it for 50. Wow. Wow. Those great lines from the C.S. Lewis sermon, we've used them before. His sermon called The Weight of Glory, he says that, that we are like children who have been given the offer of a vacation at the ocean, at the seashore, he says. But we're content to sit at home and make mud pies. And then he makes this very telling statement. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily. And I would say of my life, far too safe and far too comfortable, and perhaps you can relate to this, far too predictable. And the call of the kingdom upon our lives, the call of Jesus, is a call to adventure. It is a call to give it up yes. and to let him lead the way 
into the adventure of a lifetime filled with blessings and experiences that we cannot imagine until we go there. Filled with hardships and struggles and trials that we don't want to imagine until we go there. And yet, the blessing and the reward of following Him, I am convinced, is just wonderful. It's the adventure that we are finding, I think, in these kingdom parables in Matthew 13. It's the adventure that Jesus is calling those who follow Him to come with. Let us not be a people who are far too easily satisfied. In these parables, at least I hope, we are getting a look at the value system of God's kingdom. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, upside down values. The values of the kingdom of heaven, the values of the kingdom of God, where God is king, they just so often don't make sense with the values of the world system in which we live. And yet, those values, in so many ways, express the character of God, and it's those values that we are called to live out in obedience as we follow after Jesus every day of our lives. So, let's stand together, and let's read our text for this morning. Two more parables from Jesus, telling us again, in a different way, what the kingdom of heaven is like. Let's read together. Here is another illustration Jesus used. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of garden plants. It grows into a tree, and birds come and make nests in its branches. Jesus also used this illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. Jesus always used stories and illustrations like these when speaking to the crowds. In fact, he never spoke to them without using such parables. This fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophets. I will speak to you in parables. I will explain things hidden since the creation of the world. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Be seated. Kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a garden and it grows. Kingdom of heaven is like yeast that is put into the bread and it grows. I want you to ask your neighbor, what comes to mind when you think of Mustard and yeast. Go for it. Sandwiches. Thank you, Jill. <laughs> Just what we're looking for. <laughs> it, it came to mind. <laughs> we're hungry.
What's he think of? <laughs> you just got to shake him, wake him up. Okay, besides the ham sandwiches that Jill is thinking about, what comes to mind? You think of, you think of mustard. There you go. You think of mustard. It's kind of sharp. Okay. Intense. Okay. A little bit goes a long way. Unless you're my son, Luke. Loves more mustard than anything on his sandwiches. <laughs> what else? Do you ever get mustard on your clothes? Ah, stains. It's rather prominent. Some of us can't help it, Lee. We're excited about our ham sandwiches. <laughs> And it spills out. <laughs> All right. How about yeast? Not what? Okay. Not really worth anything by itself. Okay. What else? Little goes a long ways. Yeah. Say again. Hunger. Okay. Okay. Okay, yeah, yeah, does, works its, works its way through. Remember, we started this series with a reminder of the Jewish disciples knowing and understanding the nature of a kingdom. Remember, in Matthew 13, Jesus is giving six different illustrations and saying the kingdom of heaven is like, and and the kingdom concept, we said the, the disciples would be very familiar with, probably more so than us. You know, they, they lived in a kingdom. They were familiar with the concept of the king being the head of the kingdom. Some kings were good and some kings were not good. And, uh, and the Jewish people had a history, a long history of a kingdom. Oh, they knew kingdoms. They knew what kings were about. They knew what went on in kingdoms. They knew what worked. They knew what didn't work. And so... When Jesus began to talk about a kingdom, there is no doubt that not only the disciples, but the other Jews who were listening into these teachings, they would, they would dial right in. They would know exactly what is at stake. They would know that a kingdom revolves around a leader. And the leader is the one who sets the laws and the tone and says, this is the way life is you want to be a member of my kingdom, you will abide by the laws. Otherwise, you die. That's what kings did. And all of the Jews would have been taking those familiar thoughts and focusing them in on the concept of the Messianic kingdom. Since the days of Abraham, they were looking forward to a Messiah. They were looking forward to the one who would come and be their final ruler and their final rescuer the one who would, who would pull them out of the oppression and the suffering that they had experienced as God's people 
and put them back on the top of the nations of the world where they felt they rightfully belonged. There would finally be peace and justice and hope starting with them. That's where their minds would go when they would hear talk of a kingdom. But as they begin to hear some of these examples, these stories that Jesus would tell, they begin to learn as we're learning that it's, it's a kingdom that has a whole lot to do with the heart's response to the king. It has a whole lot to do with the heart's response to the values of the king. It's a whole lot to do with our response to whether or not we want to live in such a way that we experience the blessing and the joy of the king. And that would not be unfamiliar either, except for the fact that the values of this kingdom are so upside down. On earth, this kingdom that Jesus talks about, though it is mighty and though it is the home of the most powerful king in the universe, on earth, this kingdom takes a whole different form than what the disciples expected. It was a kingdom that was based on a different kind of a power. A power that didn't beat people down, but a power that came from underneath and served and loved and gave and sacrificed. What in the world kind of a kingdom is that? Welcome to the kingdom of God on earth. Amen. And so the disciples, I'm sure, struggled with with what they knew to be true in their hearts, what they were hoping for in terms of their experience and their expectations. And yet Jesus brings some values into their kingdom thinking that stretch them and I hope stretch us. This morning, I think Jesus is, is taking us just in a, a slightly different direction with these two parables. And I think it may be, just maybe to offer some encouragement to, his, to, to those disciples, the first disciples and, and to us as well. I think these parables have to do with the, the growth and the impact of God's kingdom on earth. I think it's very possible that Jesus is offering his disciples some encouragement because up to this point, this kingdom is not panning out to be the kind of kingdom that they have been hoping for and praying for and looking for and, and wanting to give their lives to be a part of. different for sure than anything that they have ever been a part of. They want to be a part of a kingdom that is vital and growing and powerful and a kingdom that ultimately has to be dealt with. Well, guess what? The kingdom of God is that kind of a kingdom. But in its full-blown appearance, we wait until the kingdom of heaven to see it perhaps in some forms that would be more recognizable. The kingdom of heaven on earth takes much more of a quiet, uh, almost secretive sort of approach. 
And I think that's what Jesus is bringing to bear once again on the disciples and on us, both as reminder and as encouragement. Who are our Southerners here? I know I've got Rick here. We got some other Southerners here? Anybody? Just one. <laughs> uh, Texans don't even consider Texas as Southern. <laughs> Rick, I didn't ask you this ahead of time. Can you tell us anything about kudzu? Yeah. You know anything about kudzu? Anybody know anything about kudzu? What do you know? <laughs> it is. Absolutely. If you have ever been in the South, you see kudzu. Now, it was interesting. I, I, <laughs> and if they're left unattended for very long, they'll be covered by kudzu. Yeah. Article on the history of kudzu I was reading this week says, Kudzu is indigenous to Japan and China. It was introduced to the South in the early 1900s in an attempt to provide improved fodder for cattle. It worked all too well. Cattle do love kudzu, but not nearly as much as kudzu loves the South. The Southeastern United States provides nearly ideal climate and growing conditions for this rapid growing and hardy perennial. And then in parentheses, that's hardy as in calling nuclear weapons explosive. Kudzu is a vine that when left uncontrolled will eventually grow over almost any fixed object in its proximity. Houses, barns, abandoned cars, telephone poles, wires, pets if they sit too long. <laughs> if you have never seen kudzu, just go onto your browser and type in K-U-D-Z-U, kudzu, and you will see pictures of kudzu. The mustard seed, the mustard plant was the kudzu of Palestine. It grew everywhere. And it grew in ways that would just take over a garden. And just like kudzu, it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it, it, it had many, many uses. You just had to keep an eye on your mustard plants when they started to grow. If left untended... The mustard seed could grow into a plant that would be 10 to 15 feet in height. Those of you who have had gardens and you have planted sunflowers on the wrong side of the garden, you know what happens to the rest of the flowers that live in the shadows of the sunflowers. Well, same was true with the mustard plant. Oh, sure, it would potentially grow big enough, Jesus says, to shelter birds provide shade on a hot day, but it would also overrun a person's garden. It would shade the smaller flowers and the vegetables from the sun that they needed to grow and put out a root system that would steal all the water. In ancient tradition, probably sometime around 2nd century, 1st, 2nd century Palestine, there is a text in the Mishnah, which is a collection of rabbinical writings that interpret the law. There is a text in the Mishnah that forbids planting mustard seeds in a garden because of its, quote, subversive impact. 
Isn't that interesting? The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. How big is a mustard seed? It's pretty small. Pretty small. The smallest of the seeds that they had available in that day. Oh, sure, there are smaller seeds in the world, but in first century Palestine, mustard seed was, was often used in literature to describe something that was so small. Oh, are you kidding? He has the heart size of a mustard seed. That wasn't a compliment. Nor was a brain the size of a mustard seed. <laughs> you know, mustard seed was, was tiny. And yet Jesus is saying that out of something so tiny, something so seemingly insignificant, there is great potential for growth. What do you think the disciples of Jesus heard when they heard Jesus say, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed? wonder what went on in their hearts. They were familiar with tradition. They were familiar with the teachings. They were certainly familiar with the role of the mustard plant in the gardens of Palestine. I'm sure that there was mixed emotion on the part of the disciples. The kingdom of heaven is like a glorious, beautiful, gorgeous place where everything is right and people get what they, they deserve and want and there's justice and peace. Jesus says, no, it's like a mustard seed. It's like what, Lord? It's like a mustard seed. Starts really, really, really small. But give it time. Give it time and it'll take over. Give it time, and it will begin its subversive work. Jesus, I think, is, is telling the disciples that the growth of the kingdom of God will be like a mustard seed that is planted and begins to grow over time. And if it's not watched, if no one has control over it, which they do not, it will grow out of control and it will soon take over the garden. That's good news. The disciples must have felt a sense of excitement at that point, don't you think? That even though there was some confusion, they knew that, that, that mustard plants, if not tended to, would, would grow and, and take over. And they would be giving themselves to something that's going to grow, become huge, and take over. The Romans in particular. But, and this is very important, I think it's where the lesson of the mustard seed confronts our lives. A couple of things. First, it starts small. Mustard seed is small. And the truth is, it will stay small by the world's standards until one day it is, it is time for history to be rolled up and put away. Statistics show that the Christianity around the world is shrinking in comparison 
to the growth of other religions. You know what I think? I think that only concerns us. I'm not sure God is at all concerned with that because it's His kingdom. It's His mustard seed and He's growing it. And God is accomplishing His purposes. Think about the God that we know that has revealed Himself in the Scriptures. Why is it that God always seems to be the God who loves what is small, who loves what is weak, who loves what has no reputation or no power, what seems to be insignificant, unimportant, unnoticed. We live in a culture, brothers and sisters, where, where bigger is better and newer and faster is better. Bigger, better, newer, faster. Supreme values we, we really, we don't really value the smaller, the used, the slow, do we? No gold medals for the slowest person in the world. No gold medals for the, the slowest swimmer. But God is telling us that his kingdom will grow and someday it will take control of everything, but it's according to his timetable and it's according to his plan and we as members of that kingdom participate as he leads and grows us in the task and so in the meantime we strive to invest ourselves in the things that are of value to our king he is not impressed with bigger or newer or faster or better we are He's concerned about the small and the insignificant and the hurting and the broken. I couldn't help but think, what does our Father think of those faces back there? The hurting and the broken and the forgotten, the used and abused. The love of the Father towards that which is small and oftentimes by our culture standards, insignificant. How about us, brothers and sisters? Do our value systems line up with the value system of our king? Cannot help but think that sometimes our attraction to what is new and better and bigger is simply so that we can feel better about ourselves. But our king... Our king wants us to feel better about him. Our king wants us to be impressed with him. Our king wants us to share his heart. And his heart is for the work of his kingdom to grow in small and quiet and subversive kinds of ways. Perhaps traveling in paths and down tracks and into places of life where we wouldn't normally go. It's back to that story again. It's throwing birthday parties for prostitutes. It's being satisfied that we are in a place where our king would want us to be because our king values what is hurt and broken and insignificant. 
Second observation about the mustard seed, the, the life and the values of the kingdom, well, they'll be welcomed by some and not by others. You know, I think there was probably a mixed response in the crowd that day when Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Some people immediately thought, oh, it's good, I love mustard, I love my mustard plants. Others thought, I hate that stuff, it stains all my clothes. It's kind of the mixed response to, to kudzu, depending on, on your experience with it. You know, I'm told it has pretty flowers in the springtime. But it'll grow over your barn. It provides food for your cows. But it'll grow over your cows, too. <laughs> some will appreciate it, and some will not. Some will affirm it. And some will not. Our calling is to be like Christ every moment of every day. That means that we will be a people who strive to be like Jesus, to be, to be winsome in all situations, to be caring and to be patient and to have an eye for those things that are small and insignificant, those who are caught in pain and on and on. And strangely enough, there are people who will think that we are weird for that. They won't like us. They won't care for our value system. And there will be those who welcome us and love us, just as those who love Jesus and those who dislike him as well. I'm guessing that his disciples would have heard that warning implied in Jesus' teaching about the mustard seeds. Some will welcome it and some will not. That's the way it is, says Jesus. You know, and another thought, and this one's at no extra charge, the potency of a mustard seed is known when it's crushed. The flavor of mustard comes out when the seed is crushed. You can't read into this too much because Jesus didn't go in this direction, but I, I can't help but think of the prophet's prediction of the suffering Messiah, the one who would be bruised and broken and crushed for our sins. That's a value system that makes no sense at all. Now, how about a visual aid for the yeast? Some of you have already identified it, I know. This is yeast. Many of you have yeast here at Applewood once a month. How much yeast do you suppose it takes to create that loaf of bread that we use? About that much. Less than two teaspoons that go into a two-pound loaf of bread. Gone. <laughs> Throw a little sugar on the floor and water it, right? <laughs> Small. Insignificant. Jesus is telling his disciples the kingdom grows in quiet and unseen ways. You ever wonder why Applewood Community Church is not on TV on Sunday mornings? <laughs> we... <laughs> 
No, it's not my choice, Eileen. <laughs> However, I make recommendations. No, I'm just thinking. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> Imagine. Imagine how much different the kingdom of God would be in this world if, if God's people were more convinced that the kingdom grows quietly and perhaps it even grows best when it's unseen and unnoticed. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like yeast. You know, you put the yeast in the mix and it's gone. You can't see it. But you'll know it if it's not there. And you sure appreciate the fact that it is there. You ever see the bumper sticker on cars that says, as long as there are finals, there will still be prayer in school. We have fussed and fussed and fussed over the fact that there's no longer prayer in school and this right's been taken away and this right's been taken away and now this right's been taken away. And I'm pretty sure, forgive me if this is blasphemous, that God is on His throne and He's saying, So what? It doesn't matter! Because my kingdom is growing where it can't be seen in quiet, subversive kinds of places the kingdom of god has nothing to do with our rights my brothers and sisters nothing at all it's got everything to do with what god is doing in us i think one of the greatest blessings that we face is also the greatest struggle that we face as christians in this country and and i know i've said these kinds of things before and i won't beat a dead horse but we have got to get over this this rights thing We've got. We, I, I know it's. I know it's blurry. I know that that we were founded as as a Christian nation. Some would would question that. But we are people of the citizenship of the kingdom of God, and and if this system under which we live goes south, guess what? His doesn't. And there is greater hope and greater promise in that system. And you've heard me say before, that doesn't mean that we stand back and not care if our country goes to hell in a handbasket. But it does mean that we are more concerned about the rights of those who are being oppressed and treated unjustly and unfairly. And we become like Jesus who entrusted himself to him who judges justly and just has confidence in God to protect and provide. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God is going to grow. And our participation in it, I think, is going to be determined in big part by how deeply we work at pushing that seed down into the soil of our hearts, how deeply we push that yeast down into the dough of our lives. 